Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. My God, don't turn a deaf ear to my prayer. Liars are pouring out abuse on me. Their lying tongues are like a pack of dogs out to get me, barking their hate, nipping my heels, and for no reason. I loved them, and now they slander me, yes, me, and treat my prayer like a crime. They return my good with evil. They return my love with hate. Send the evil one to accuse my accusing judge. Dispatch Satan to prosecute him. When he's judged, let the verdict be guilty. And when he prays, let his prayer turn to sin. Give him a short life and give his job to somebody else. Make orphans of his children. Dress his wife in widow's black. Turn his children into begging street urchins, evicted from their homes, homeless. May the bank foreclose and wipe him out. And strangers like vultures pick him clean. May there be no one around to help him out, no one willing to give his orphans a break. Chop down his family tree so that nobody even remembers his name, but erect a memorial to the sin of his father and make sure his mother's name is there too. Their sins recorded forever before God, but they themselves sunk in oblivion. That's all he deserves since he was never once kind, hounded the afflicted and heartbroken to their graves. Since he loved cursing so much, let curses rain down. Since he had no taste for blessing, let blessings fall far from him. He dressed up in curses like a fine suit of clothes. He drank curses, took his baths in curses. So give him a gift, a costume of curses. He can wear curses every day of the week. That's what they'll get. Those out to get me, an avalanche of just desserts from God. Oh God, my Lord, step in. Work a miracle for me. You can do it. I'm at the end of my rope, my life in ruins. I'm fading away to nothing, passing away, my youth gone, old before my time. I'm weak from hunger and can hardly stand up, my body a rack of skin and bones. I'm a joke in poor taste to those who see me. They take one look and shake their heads. Help me, oh help me, God. My God, save me through your wonderful love. Then they'll know that your hand is in this, that you, God, have been at work. Let them curse all they want. You do the blessing. Let them be jeered by the crowd when they stand up, followed by cheers for me, your servant. Dress my accusers in clothes dirty with shame, discarded and humiliating old rag bag clothes. My mouth is full of great praise for God. I'm singing his hallelujahs, surrounded by crowds, for he's always at hand to take the side of the needy, to rescue a life from the unjust judge.
We had a holy experience in worship last Sabbath. We did something what we're going to do each week of this four-part series. That is, we asked you if you would text into us your response to a statement. Last week, the statement was simply this. The hard question about my life that I would like God to answer is. And you responded. You responded with some deep, sacred, heartfelt realities. It was so deep that it left me, as I was to discover, not alone. It left me kind of internally reeling, thinking through all that we saw and shared. We were only able to share a few. Over the four services, we had hundreds and hundreds of responses. We're going to do the same thing today. I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind pointing your phone, your camera, at the QR code and, and following the instructions once you get there. The question we have for you this week is this. Why am I not more honest in my prayer life with God? Why am I not more honest in my prayers with God? I've lived long enough to realize that for me, and sadly I've discovered I'm not alone, there's a sense of needing to edit my prayers, whitewash them a bit, sand off the rough edges, not admit to certain realities. Then I can come to prayer, come to God in prayer. So why not more honest? That's the question we encourage you to answer today. At the end of the service, we'll share some of your answers. So I'd like to read you the words of a writer, pastor, by the name of Matt Woodley, who writes this, Shortly after I moved from Minnesota to Long Island, I met David, a Jewish follower of Jesus, who constantly challenged me to view the Bible through Jewish eyes. David's also a passionate, brilliant, full-blooded New Yorker. For the first two years of my ministry on Long Island, David, David would often approach me after a worship service and begin with something like, Hey, nice sermon, Matt. I like that third point a lot, but I think you missed something crucial in that passage. Let me tell you how I would see it through Jewish eyes. And then he'd launch into his weekly five-minute rebuttal argument about the finer points of biblical exegesis. I thought he was trying to pick a fight with me, but I politely listened and thanked him for his insights. But after listening to his rebuttal for two years, we Minnesotans are notoriously nice and long-suffering people, I couldn't stand it anymore. So finally, I blurted out, David, what's the deal? Don't you get anything out of my sermons? Doesn't God tell you something? Why must you always nitpick about some minor point of theology? My, my, my face flushed with anger, and David stood there frozen in shock. Finally, David broke the icy silence. He laughed. Then he said, maybe I should explain my cultural background, which is probably different from your ethnic background. When New York Jews like me argue about Scripture, we're asking for dialogue. When I tell you that I disagree with something you've said, I'm expecting you to fire back and say, oh, yeah? Well, I think you're wrong, too, and let me tell you why. You see, Jewish people sometimes get close by working through unpleasant feelings, even by arguing if necessary. 
Confronting each other is a sign of intimacy in the relationship. So when I dish it out, I want you to dish it right back. That's how intimacy and trust grow in the relationship. Wow. And then Woodley says, this concept of achieving trust and intimacy with God through intense dialogue and even a rousing argument was certainly new to me. But through my friendship with David, God has started to teach me an important lesson about prayer. Sometimes prayer involves being completely honest with God. Sometimes we grow closer to God by bringing God all of the unpleasant things about our relationship, our sadness, disappointments, laments, complaints, and even our anger. Based on the numerous God-given prayers of complaint and lamentation, it's obvious that God can handle our honesty. It's that last phrase that catches my attention. It's obvious that God can handle our honesty. Is that true? Can we be unedited with God? Can we throw away the whitewash? Can we come clearly and completely with what's in our hearts, what's on our minds, what's in our lives, and just lay it out before God without holding back? Does God value that? Does God accept that? So I want to take you to a psalm today. We're in this series entitled Soundtrack, suggesting that the psalms are often the music of our lives, the soundtrack of our souls. Uh, we're going to a psalm today that is probably without too much competition the most challenging psalm in the hymn book of ancient Israel. In fact, this is how challenging it is. In the lectionary, which is the book that guides our liturgical friends through three years of an entire journey through Scripture, in the lectionary, this psalm is left out. Left out. Many Christians just avoid it. In fact, a couple of translations I want to suggest to you kind of tweak it to help, and yet they end up destroying the true meaning of the psalm. It's a rough psalm. We're going to read it. It has three basic stanzas or sections. I'll kind of alert you when we're changing. The first section, the first stanza, is kind of the psalmist crying out for God to help him. I'm in trouble. People are after me. Please help. The second section, the long section, well, we'll say more about that. And then the third section is kind of the conclusion and the resolution. So let's read the psalm. Psalm 109. Psalm 109, I'm reading from the New International Version. Here's what it says. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred, they surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. But I'm a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. That's the first section. I'm in trouble. Help me. Okay, last week when we read Psalm 73, I said, fasten your seatbelts. Fasten your seatbelts and hold on. Second section. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. 
Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped about him, like a belt forever tied around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. Whew. That's the end of the second section. Third section. <laughs> Honestly, this almost makes me laugh because of the dramatic change in mood when he starts talking about himself. Verse 21, but you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting. My body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. While they curse me, may you bless May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servant rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. You all still out there? Wow. What in the world? Have you, I mean, when was the last time you prayed that prayer? When was the last time I prayed like that? Unbelievable. This psalm has a byline that says, a psalm of David. Really? David? You mean the David who said, I refuse to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed? That David? You mean the David who had twice the ability, had him within his grasp to finish off his enemy that just kept coming after him, trying to kill him, and David refused to do it. That David? The David of whom God would say, he's a man after my own heart. That David? What in the world? What's going on here? It's a tough Psalm. We end up asking ourselves the question, how can this psalm be in the same Bible of the Jesus who says, when you are persecuted, pray, bless your enemies, turn the other cheek. And then we come to this, and David is saying, go get them, God. Just go get, get just destroy them. May their children be fine. In fact, you remember the sins of his mother, the one she repented of? Bring them back. Put them all back on top of her. It's like, what in the world, David? angry. It's a difficult psalm. 
We leave it out of lectionaries. We don't talk about it as Christians. And then there's that matter of translating it. So let me tell you what I referred to earlier. So we read it out of the NIV. In the NIV, in fact, let me go back and read the two verses, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 is the ending verse of the first section. Verse 6 is the beginning verse of the next section when David is saying, go get them, God. So here are those two verses again. Verse 5, they repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. First part of the next section, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand, and off he goes. Now, Two well-known translations deal with it a bit differently, the New Revised Standard Version and the New Living Translation. I want to read to you how the NRSV deals with this. Again, I want to read it to you with those two verses, that last verse of the first section and the first verse of the second section. So this is what it says. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. They say... Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand on his right. Now, that's not only curious. That changes the entire meaning of the psalm. Those two little words, they say. So that in that translation, what the psalmist is saying, God, you need to help me. They're after me. They're really coming. In fact, God, do you want, do you want to have some sympathy for me? Here's what they're saying about me. They say, and then follows the whole litany that we read. In that psalm, it's just the psalmist reporting on what his enemies are saying about him. So which is it? Well, there's a scholarly debate. I looked at commentary after commentary this week, and the debate is robust and vigorous. However, you should know at least this. Those two little words, they say, those do not appear in the Hebrew manuscript. They're not there. They're added by the translators to help you understand the passage better. Now, there are some textual reasons for which they argue for that. In my humble, and I mean that, opinion, not particularly strong. But those who end up where the NIV is, here's what's curious. Most of the commentaries I considered, from conservative to liberal, ended up saying, this is what we believe the psalm is saying. The psalmist is saying, go get them, God. I would vigorously contend that that's what the psalm is saying, that here we have a unique insight into the full-throated, full-bodied, robust prayer of the psalmist at a time of deep struggle and difficulty. We don't know what occasioned it. Some commentators suggest times that may be a possibility, one says this prayer grows out of the time when Absalom dethroned David and David was running for his life and some of his closest and nearest and dearest companions and advisors turned on him. Ahithophel was trying to help kill David. You say, that's when it was written. Another says it was written when Doag murdered, slaughtered all the priests and their families of the Lord because Saul thought they were helping to hide David. 
There's no way to know for certain. But what is clear is this was no simple little disagreement. This was something deep and profound. The ones who were out to get him, who were after him, truly were evil people, at least in what they did. And David cries out to God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, calls out. I, I was going through something really challenging. It's been some years ago now. I realized that, that some of the challenge and some of the place it was coming from, there was some vigorous processing going on. I was talking to somebody in my life, a very wise person, kind of a coach at times, talking to him about the pain of that and wondering what should I do about that. He said something to me that I've not forgotten. He simply said this, Randy, everybody processes somewhere. Everybody processes somewhere. It reminds me of a rule of thumb. It's just a rule of thumb. You can't put it in a lab in the in a test tube in the lab and prove it. It's a rule of thumb, but I think there's something to it. It's a rule of thumb of things psychological and relational. Here's the rule of thumb. Emotions, feelings, especially painful ones, anger and fear, abandonment, emotions that are not talked out get acted out. It's a good rule of thumb. Emotions that are not talked out get acted out. Could it be that David is processing the most painful realities of his life and the anger that grows out of those with God? Listen to Old Testament scholar Clinton McCann as he writes about this. He writes, The psalmist's submission to God of rage heard and Demand for justice is not only to be expected, but it is also to be accepted as a sign of health. At this point, Psalm 109 teaches a basic principle of pastoral care. Anger is the legitimate response to abuse and victimization, and appropriate anger must be expressed. Such catharsis is healing. What Psalm 109 represents, however, is not merely a therapeutic movement. Rather, it is a theological catharsis as well. The anger is expressed, but it is expressed in prayer and thereby submitted to God. While it is not explicit, we may assume that the psalmist's submission of anger to God in prayer was sufficient. This angry, honest prayer thus removes the necessity for the psalmist to take actual revenge upon the enemy. It seems that the psalmist honors God's affirmation in Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine. Thus, this vehement, violent-sounding prayer is, in fact, an act of nonviolence. Well, what about that? My angry prayer about what's happening to me, submitted to God, is an act of nonviolence because the feelings are legitimate and because I bring them to God unvarnished, unedited, and say, here it is, God. This is where I am. And then I can stand and walk out and turn the other cheek because it's all been processed with God. Wow.
that's how I want to pray. Came across a, a quote this week, book I haven't read. I've not read it. But man, after reading this, I'm going to read it. Kyle Strobel. Here's what Strobel writes. Prayer is not a place to be good. It is a place to be honest. Prayer is not a place to perform. It is a place to be present. Prayer is not a place to be right. It is a place to be known. Prayer is not a place to prove your worth. It is a place to receive worth and offer yourself in truth. That's prayer. What that means is I process, I vent my most passionate emotions to God. And maybe sometimes, and I say this carefully, maybe to God alone. I say it carefully because there are people in our lives confidential, deep, wise, who have their hand in the hand of God, who can at times help me do that. And we should not close that door. But sometimes our venting is really intended just to create damage to others. So my most passionate venting I do to God and maybe to God alone. But if I'm going to pray that way, it seems to me I have to have, we have to have some profound convictions. I want to suggest three. Conviction number one, we have to be convicted that God desires our authenticity. Otherwise, we can never pray that way. We have to be convicted that God desires our authenticity, that God desires what we just read. In other words, God is not like, I've said this before, but I'll repeat it again. God is like, not like so many spouses or couples that are dating. The evening formal dinner is over. They're driving home and the car is silent. What's wrong? Nothing. I'm fine. I am just fine. Okay. Well, I don't know what it is, but I can tell you one thing we're not, and that's fine. That's not what God wants. God wants to know openness, candor, honesty. In fact, sometimes I have wondered, is that maybe why God said, David's a man after my own heart? Because I know where I stand with David. There is no pretense. Read this book. It's amazing what people in this book do with God. Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, God, th th this, this whole country's falling apart. How are you letting this happen? What are you doing? God gives him a response he doesn't like. Habakkuk said, that doesn't work. I'm going to go out of the city. I'm going to stand on this tower. I'm going to wait for your answer. And when you give me your answer, I'm going to tell you what I think of your answer. About that time, I'm saying, back away from Habakkuk. Back, get back, get back, get back. You know what happens? God answers. Not an answer Habakkuk was looking for. And the last chapter, after that episode's over, the last chapter of Habakkuk is a psalm of praise on the part of Habakkuk. God, you want my authenticity? Here it is, says Habakkuk. They have their exchange, and then Habakkuk praises. If you're part of the group of us who are reading through the Bible this week, just a week or two ago, you read what I think is one of the most amazing exchanges between God and a person in Scripture, and that's Moses and God. Remember that? Comes a point where, because of the people's behavior, God says, Moses, 
get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to make of you a great person. And Moses says, no, 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 God, don't do that. Don't do that. What, what will the neighbors say? You can't do that. And he finally talks God off the cliff. And then a few chapters later, Moses says to God, okay, I'm out of the way. Just get rid of them. Just do the." And God's like, Moses, Moses, please, just, just calm down. Calm down, sit down, uh, have a tea, you know, just take, take a load off. And I read that and I say, that is unbelievable. That's the kind of God we serve who engages with us, who accepts what's in our hearts, unvarnished, unwhitewashed, unedited, truthful. God desires our authenticity. That's the first conviction. The second conviction is that our authenticity will include anger. It will. It'll include all kinds of emotions. But a lot of the other emotions aren't as hard for us to express as is anger. But it will include anger. I take it as an assumption that it is not possible to have an authentic relationship with a person with whom we do not have the permission to get angry. It's not possible. We can have a relationship but we can't have a relationship of depth because we're open, we talk, we share until that moment of disagreement and anger comes and then we shut down. Can't deal with that, can't talk about that, can't say that. Can't have a truly authentic relationship. And that includes with God. If we cannot express our anger to God, then our relationship is superficial to the degree that it hits the anger, and then it stops being authentic. And again, if you go to this book, I mean, how recently have you read the story of Jonah? Jonah, whose story ends sitting out under a bush, angry as everything, just furious. God said, Jonah, what's wrong? I'm angry. That's what's wrong. Why are you angry, Jonah? Because... I mean, this is why I didn't want to come here. I knew what kind of God you are. I don't want these people saved. You send me here, I preach, they start crying, you get all soft and forgive them, and it just makes me so mad. I didn't want to come here to begin with. And God's like, Jonah, Jonah, these are my children too. Yeah, I don't want them saved. Jonah is just open with God. Amazing. God desires true and intimate relationship with us, authenticity, and that includes anger. Hollywood made a movie 25 years ago, 1997, entitled The Apostle. The Apostles, the story of the Apostle E.F., story that a good friend of mine watched and said, I like that movie, and I don't like that I like that movie. Because the main character, the Apostle E.F., is kind of a David. He sins big and repents loud. And my friend said, I don't want to like that kind of person, but I honestly kind of liked him. There's a scene in the movie when he's storming around the house upstairs. You hear all this shouting and banging around, and his mother's asked, what is going on up there? He says, well, it's just EF. He's having it out with God. And that's exactly what he's doing, just having it out with God. And I think, how beautiful is that? This is just where I am, God. God desires our authenticity. Our authenticity will include anger at times. And the third conviction the conviction that if we vent with God, our anger will be a journey, not a destination. 
a journey, not a destination. One of the reasons sometimes we're afraid to express our anger is we're afraid that we're going to set up camp there. We'll set up our tent. We'll start digging the footings and pouring the foundation and putting up the walls for a house where we're going to live for good in this location called anger. It will become a destination. But that's not what happens to the men and women of Scripture. When they vent their emotions, their feelings, their anger at God openly and honestly, their anger becomes a journey, not a destination. And there may be no better example than this psalm. I want to read you the last two verses. We didn't read them before. The last two verses of the psalm. Now, just remember, before we read these, what has happened before. God, I'm in trouble. I need help. And then verse after verse of this emotion that comes frothing out of him, but it's pointed in a Godward direction. And then resolution. And this is where it ends. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng, throng of worshipers, I will praise him. For he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. Amazing. He ends up in two things, praise and presence. God, I praise you. Why? Because you are present with me. His anger, as real, as white hot as it was, was not a destination. It was a journey. So what if that becomes our prayer life? What if we don't edit our prayers, our personal prayers, but we're open? God knows it anyway. Just like you know probably what's going on with that person that keeps saying it's fine, it's just fine. God knows it. It says something relational when you can truly open up and express it. So what keeps us? What hinders us from doing that? Well, you've told us. We're going to take just a couple of moments or so to view some of what you texted in in answer to the question, why am I not more honest with God in prayer? So watch the screen.
is, and that's only some of it, ashamed, afraid, thinking you're not interested, fear that you don't want to know what's really inside of me, and the reasons just go on. <laughs> but God, we're thankful for David, thankful for this brutal psalm, this psalm of honest prayer. Lord, we want all of these experiences, especially our anger, not to be a destination, but to be a journey. We yearn to end up where David did. Praise in your presence. But give us the courage for authentic prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.